Hello, everyone. Welcome to Discus Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, brought to you by the APTA AMPT Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group. In this podcast, we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehab. We're so excited for you guys to join us today. My name is Kristen Cizat. And I'm Uzair Hamad, and we're your host. Our Discus guest today is Nicholas Evans, and we are so excited to introduce him. Nick and his colleague, also one of our previous guests on Discus, recently published a very interesting pilot study taking a look at intensive locomotor-related skill training and transcranial direct current stimulation in chronic spinal cord injury in the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Nick serves at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia, with dual roles as a clinical exercise physiologist at the Outpatient Neurorehabilitation Program, Beyond Therapy, and SCI Clinical Research Scientist in the Whole Spinal Cord Injury Laboratory, where he serves as a research associate in which he provides research support for the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research funded studies where he investigates the effects of moderate intensity exercise and transcranial direct stimulation on lower extremity motor function and walking among persons with spinal cord injury. In addition to his professional roles at Shepherd Center, Nick is a PhD candidate in the Department of Applied Physiology at the Georgia Institute of Technology with an anticipated graduation in the summer. So congratulations, Nick. Yes, no, I appreciate that. Well, welcome, Nick. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, you know, I've, I've uh, listened to many of your podcasts, previous podcast episodes, and uh, looking at the list of guests that you've had in the past, you know, I'm very honored to be among one of those guests. And, uh, you know, they're very esteemed, uh, seasoned researchers and clinicians. So, so to be included in, uh, in your podcast, I think is a, a great opportunity for me. And I appreciate the invitation. Well, thanks, man. It's our pleasure to have you. Um, but so before we dive really deep into the details of your study, I was wondering if you can just give us and our listeners a little bit of background on the research behind the interventions you guys chose to utilize in this project. So first, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the transcranial direct current stimulation specific to spinal cord injuries. Yeah, yeah, no, I think this is a good jumping off point. Um, so, so before I maybe start with diving into what transcranial direct current stimulation is for those of uh, listeners that you know may not be familiar with the technology. Uh, it might be useful just to um, highlight some important features of spinal cord injury, which I'm sure your listeners are going to be you know familiar with and aware of, but just so you can kind of get a sense of why we chose uh, TDCS as a intervention for this study. Um, you know, first of all, we know that aside from the damage to the neural elements within the spinal cord, you know, that's induced by injury, there are supraspinal changes, changes in uh, sensory motor maps, changes in cortical excit- excitability of, you know, motor areas of the, of the brain um, that have direct impact and influence on the ability to volitionally control muscles of, in particular, uh, for walking function, muscles of the lower extremities, um, that has consequences for, you know, how individuals can perform and, you know, to the extent that they can, you know, to walk and, and, uh, navigate obstacles in the environment, 
So, so we considered not only, um, you know, this, this idea of walking following spinal cord injury being kind of modulated and mediated by central pattern generators within the spinal cord, but, but also uh, the necessity of supraspinal inputs to modulate the, you know, central pattern generating networks to produce functional bipedal walking. Um, so, so anyway, so we, we take into account the fact that um, aside from what's happening at the level of the spinal cord, um, that there are important contributions from supraspinal centers that could be meaningful and logical targets for our intervention. So, so that's kind of the jumping off point for um, where we started uh, kind of leaning into the different interventions that we, we might choose. So um, if we, um, you know, all agree that supraspinal inputs and are important and that there are potentially uh, meaningful targets for interventions that, that, you know, are outside of just activating the, the muscles directly or, uh, or activating the spinal circuitry, um, then we might look at different technologies that could be used to augment our, our motor training interventions. And so there are different non-invasive neuromodulation technology. I know technologies, I know that you have had a previous guest, uh, Monica Perez, who talked about neuromodulation. So, you know, uh, if your, your listeners haven't gone to that podcast yet to listen to that, that would be great to get, to get a more in-depth uh, understanding of what we mean by neuromodulation technology, but but transcranial direct current stimulation is just one of um, a few different uh, brain stimulation, non-invasive brain stimulation technologies that um, are used to to modulate the excitability of the central nervous system. Um, so we selected this technology because. Uh, in comparison to something like transcranial magnetic stimulation, this is a more accessible technology. It's it's easier to apply, and and that's something that we considered throughout the the, the this uh, this intervention that we employed. So we could talk more about that in terms of the accessibility and feasibility of actually using this technology in the real world or in the clinic. But um, so it's it's a um, essentially a, a non-invasive neuromodulation technology in which individuals um, would use one or, or two or more electrodes. Um, typically these would be like saline soaked electrodes that are applied on the scalp over particular regions of the brain that are you know, targets of interest. Um, and a direct current is applied at a, typically a very low intensity. These are constant current stimulation, current flow that's being directed into the brain through a positively charged electrode um, that's referred to the referred to as the anode, and the current flows from that positively charged electrode out to the negatively charged cathodal electrode, and um, and dependent on the current flow, changes the level of excitability of the neural um, structures underneath those electrodes, and the the current kind of consensus of how this technology works is that wherever you place the positively charged anode electrode uh, uh, kind of instigates an increase in excitability, um, a, a kind of a hypopolarization of the neurons underneath that, that particular electrode. And structures under the negatively charged electrode um, tend to be inhibited 
by the stimulation. So, so it's not that uh, the stimulation produces a single effect, um, that it really, uh, you know, kind of produces two opposing effects. And then, you know, we can have a deeper dive maybe later into, mm -hmm. you know, how do you decide where to place these electrodes? And, you know, considering that one electrode is going to produce excitation theoretically, and, and the other is going to produce some inhibition of, of neural structure. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a technology that has two, two decades at least of, of literature. Um, but the idea with TDCS is that it, it, it's not, the intensities aren't, aren't sufficient to actually elicit action potentials. Okay. So it's just changes the level of excitability so that any additional input, imagine additional, you know, volitional input that's being produced by the person who's trying to perform an action, a motor action, um, that action is more likely to be induced uh, if the level of excitability is raised um, by, uh, you know, the use of this technology. Just, just altering awesome. the level of excitability um, can theoretically enhance the effect of, of the motor output. That is so interesting. I do have a, before we move on as far as, cause you mentioned the, the difference in accessibility with this type of um, technology versus TMS, for example. Mm -hmm. So, but it sounds very similar to the TMS application. So could you just briefly explain to us what makes this a little bit more um, practical to use in the clinic versus something like TMS? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the, the, the benefits of TMS um, is that it, it can be more precise in terms of the localization of stimulation. Although there are new, uh, newer TDCS electrode montages. There's a, there's a, a montage called high definition TDCS that actually uses an array of, of smaller, uh, maybe five or more electrodes that um, is believed to, to provide a little bit more precise localization of TDCS. But, but okay, so but the benefit of TMS is the localization and the precision at which you can deliver stimulation to whatever target region you'd like. Um, the, the, a couple of major limitations is in order for the stimulation to be delivered successfully in a very precise location, the individual who's receiving stimulation needs to be very still. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically, they're they're lying down in a supine position, um, or they may be in a chair that's reclined. The head is stabilized. Um, there could be some mapping involved to ensure that you're you're you know selecting the right location. Uh, and then there's a you know of course there's a coil that's delivering a, a you know a pulse of uh, of magnetic magnetic stimulation that then elicits a response. So um, if we want to pair uh, you know, non-invasive brain stimulation with motor training of the sort that we we're interested in, which is very dynamic movements. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the person's going to be moving around. They're going to be in different positions. They may may need to be standing. It's just not practical or feasible to use TMS under those conditions. And so, um, you know, TDCS, although the you know the focality of the stimulation may not be. Uh, nearly as precise, although I, you know, like I said, I, there there are other montages that could could be used and have been reported in the literature. 
Um, it allows for some neuromodulation of supraspinal centers, but during activities that would be more dynamic. Um, and the cost of the technology, just simply the cost and accessibility. I mean, you, you know, a, a, a TDCS unit could be, you know, only a few hundred dollars, whereas, you know, uh, how many clinics could afford a TMS unit um, that well, is going to be much, much more costly, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, that explanation. Yeah. That really does help clear it up. All right, Nick. So a lot of the studies that have been done in the past have looked at task specificity, specifically for like walking training. Um, but your group took this a little bit, a, a different approach. So explain to us what led your group to consider other motor learning principles outside of just walking practice. Yeah. Um, I love this question because, um, you know, we can spend a long time <laughs> talking about, I don't, yeah, I love the question not because we could spend a long time, but but because there are many interesting things that could be said about this, and and um, you know the the literature uh, sometimes is very conflicting on this idea of specificity of training. Um, so you know I'll I'll maybe throw out a few ideas, and then you know I'm happy to hear your thoughts and you know objections if you have any. But but um, so so. When we consider specificity of training, um, I imagine this to be more on a, on a spectrum of the types of motor tasks that you might have an individual participate in, as opposed to direct, you know, just the notion that you have to directly replicate the exact movement pattern to produce some meaningful change in, in motor performance. Um, so, you know, I, I think specifically about another one of your, uh, you know, episodes with Dr. Hornby mm -hmm. and uh, Dr. Holleran on their um, clinical practice guidelines for improving locomotor function after spinal cord injury. And they came to the same conclusion that we did, um, keeping in mind that, you know, they were, our study started in 2016. Um, they were considering literature up until that point mm -hmm. as part of their clinical practice guidelines up until 2016. And we came to the same conclusion that based on the literature, uh, investigating the kind of uh, effects and the value of things like body weight supported treadmill training, uh, robotic assisted gait training with, you know, whether it's a suspended over a treadmill with body weight support or whether it's a wearable exoskeleton. Um, that the evidence, you know, was not overly compelling. That that form of training, this repetitive stepping practice, necessarily generated the kind of improvements in locomotor function, at least for individuals, you know, greater than six months post injury, um, that uh, you know compelled us to think that this was the only approach that needed to be taken, or could there be another motor training approach based on? Uh, uh, you know, other literature that was available at the time that could be valuable and beneficial. So, um, you know, I, th I think that the, the, the general belief that um, body weight supported treadmill training, for example, is, is, is a specific uh, strategy for improving walking function, um, I, I think is maybe a, a false assumption because body weight support 
by itself, and there's there's evidence for this, body weight support alone changes the kinematics of walking, as well as the kinetics, as well as the interaction of the individual's foot when it contacts the ground. So, you know, the more you offload somebody with body weight support, for example, the, the lower the ground reaction forces are under the person's foot when they make contact with the ground. Um, and an argument can be made, well, you know, then you transfer the person off of a treadmill and you put them over ground and they need to generate, you know, a different, uh, you know, magnitude of ground reaction force to propel themselves across, across the, across the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my mind, you know, that's not body weight support is not specific in the sense that we, we think it is, it's not specific to the kinetics of walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about, you know, the constraints imposed by exoskeletal walking. Um, you know, typically these devices restrain people in a sagittal plane uh, in terms of sagittal plane movements. Um, although, you know, I know I know companies are trying to to uh, provide more degrees of freedom in their technology. But in the real world, you know, we're not constrained to simple sagittal plane kinematics. Uh, you know, hip, knee, and ankle joint excursions, but but you know, there there's mediolateral uh, you know motion. There's internal, external rotation, and 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 so so um, again, how specific is that style of training to the, the actual uh, movement patterns that are required when individuals are navigating overground walking? Um, and so, you know. We we considered those features. We considered uh, the literature that was available at that time, and again, um, you know, there was convergence in in kind of the the evidence that pointed to, hey, there, there need to be other there there could be other approaches um, that could also be valuable. Um, so you know that that speaks to maybe the specificity piece, and you know the only the only other thing I'll add to that is that there is a um, I would say a, a reasonable, you know, body of literature in the sports performance um, world and the, 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 the kind of the coaching domain of human performance. Um, ideas such as constraint led approach or the differential learning approach, that's a Wolfgang Schulhorn. Those, those approaches are very interesting because what they ask of, 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 of athletes uh, or um, or children and adolescents who are learning specific motor tests is that you remove constraints from, from the individual and you allow them to explore all the possible movement solutions that they, that they could generate to achieve a specific task mm-hmm. um, as opposed to constraining the individual to, to a certain you know, kind of kinematic movement or, or specific um, you know, movement sequence. So I know that's a long-winded, yeah. <laughs> that's long-winded. Do you, you consider that to be kind of that same principle or concept of like error-based learning and, and finding, yes. finding the right mechanics to, to achieve the task? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, and, and that, you know, error-based learning, you know, again, I, I view that just on the spectrum of, of approaches that could be taken you know, as clinicians, we have to decide in terms of specificity, there's always going to be a trade-off between, um, you know, what things you want to try to capitalize on and what you're willing to give up, you know, and I think with, with the kind of traditional locomotor training, with the body weight support, you have 
clinicians manipulating steps manually, or you have them strapped into a device. You know, the, the idea was, well, we're going to constrain the movement, you know, as much as we can so that the person's not making, you know, errors. And, you know, that's going to create the kind of change that we're interested in. And, you know, I mean, I think it's logical uh, to, to, to think that way, but but we found, I think, based on the evidence that, you know, that may not be the most effective strategy. Um, so I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but. No, absolutely. And just as a, you know, a practicing clinician um, who has over the last, you know, 12 to 13 years changed the pra- my practice based on the, the evidence that's coming out, um, mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed that transition from this like perfect stepping pattern and, and, and repetition in these ways that to allowing my my clients to be able to learn through mistakes and giving them new challenges. Um, yeah. it's, it's been really fun to see the the progression and the outcomes um, from just kind of this transition that I have been able to see in my practice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, if I could just add one more thing, but yeah, I don't want it to sound as if, you know, I'm advocating for just like a no holds barred approach, you know, let any, any, anything goes. Uh, you know, I mean, you're not going to work on just purely, you know, reaching grasp activities and expecting, you know, someone to, to improve their walking performance. So, so, you know, that's not what we're, we're advocating, of course. I mean, we still need to have individuals produce movements that are somewhat characteristic of the types of sequences that they would, you know, need to produce during, during stepping, walking and navigating obstacles in the environment. So, um, you know, uh, you know, I just want to add that one last little piece so it doesn't sound as if, you know, we just should let people do whatever they want. But, but you know, we need to allow them to, to figure out how to navigate their, their own mobility, you know, challenges and deficits and use what they can to produce the end result, which is improved walking. Absolutely. I, I think that the the main underlying theme here is is achieving the appropriate intensity, right? Um, in the walking that you've kind of just mentioned, as far as um, trying to perfect gait or body weight supported um, treadmill training with the clinicians physically advancing the limbs for for the clients, their the appropriate level of intensity is never is never achieved. Um, and then in your guys' study, you guys took a look at intensity as well, but with locomotor related task specific training. So um, to segue into our next question, I was wondering if you could kind of describe your study design and the specific like motor skill training circuit that you guys use to to achieve that, um, that appropriate, appropriate intensity and um, locomotor related skill training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, so first of all, you know, training intensity is another one of those topics that we could have a whole podcast, you know, probably easily uh, discussing. Um, and so just at the outset, I, I want to make clear what we mean by training intensity, because this has come up recently, um, you know, as, as uh, an important feature that can sometimes be neglected in, uh, in our kind of more traditional approaches to training. Um, and it, what we mean by intensity, though, sometimes um, uh, is mischaracterized maybe in the, in the literature or, or misinterpreted. I don't want to say mischaracterized, but maybe misinterpreted. So, um, 
So what we don't mean by intensity is just more repetitions. So more repetitions does not equate to the kind of physiological intensities that we're, we're talking about. Because you can imagine a scenario where someone uh, does very slow, repetitive movements, but never generates the kind of physiological intensities. It doesn't induce any type of physiological demand um, greater than, you know, what they might experience if they were, you know, do, just doing very light activities. So, so you know, the, the, the idea of training intensity and in, in influencing motor skill performance is based on literature that is attempting to link physiological mechanisms with, uh, you know, the, the acquisition and the retention of motor skills. And so when we, when we think about training intensity, we're thinking about intensities or the types of activities that can be performed that generate, you know, physiologically higher intensities that capitalize on, um, the types of mechanisms that have been proposed that kind of relate to relate intensity to motor skill performance. And I don't know if it's worthwhile going into, you know, what those specific mechanisms are, but I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to have those discussions, but um, certainly, you know, we've provided citations in our publication that people can reference and I'd be happy to talk more detail, but okay. So, so just so we're clear. So we're, what we mean is physiological intensity, not simply just number of repetitions, um, and so in order to generate the kinds of, in, of physiological intensities that, um, you know, seem to be linked to the mechanisms that are associated with improvements in, in motor skill, uh, acquisition and retention, um, we had individuals perform six different exercises. Um, and these exercises, we asked individuals to move through the movement patterns as quickly but as safely as they could. Um, and um, these, you know, kind of movements or these specific tasks involved lower body muscle groups, of course. Um, they involved activation and deactivation of, you know, alternate muscle groups at the hip, knee, and ankle. Um, they were, some of them are cyclic in nature. So, so some, some of these characteristics are the things that you, you would anticipate and we know that are happening when people are walking over ground. Mm -hmm. um, but the key piece is, is, um, is, a, is the velocity of movement. And in particular, we had a vertical jump exercise. Um, and so we're asking people to move with some velocity uh, and that is the, the, is the kind of movement strategy that we feel is going to induce the higher training intensities as opposed to just having the person try to just replicate the activity with no real direction as far as how they should be moving and the intent of how vigorously they should be performing the activity. So, Absolutely. And just to clarify for our listeners, these were all these individuals were motor incomplete um, spinal cord injured patients, right? Yeah, that is correct. So, so motor incomplete, um, uh, chronic spinal cord injury, um, they, they need needed to have at least the ability to initiate three steps, okay. uh, independently to be included in the study. So, um, it wasn't the case that, uh, individual participants needed to be able to walk, you know, long distances, uh, but they needed to be able to initiate some steps. 
Okay. Um, and they needed to be able to tolerate um, uh, standing uh, for at least five minutes because the circuit, we asked individuals to complete ex- each exercise for one minute um, before we would transition to the next exercise and they would complete four, four total circuits. So they needed to be able to tolerate some standing. Okay. Um, and they needed to have enough volitional activation of the lower limb musculature to, to initiate at least a few steps. Okay. And then for those individuals that I'm assuming some, you know, clients were obviously maybe weaker than, or just at a different place of their recovery than others, for those that needed physical assistance, were, were they provided that physical assistance? And how did you guys go about monitoring the intensity during the circuit if you were providing physical assistance? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so we monitored intensity um, via heart rate. Okay. So our we we captured um, we captured heart rate continuously throughout the the training, and so um, you know we there may be arguments uh, that could be had that okay well so maybe heart rate variability in persons with spinal cord injury, especially with you know higher level injuries, maybe above T six. Okay, is heart rate really reflective of the of the, the level of intensity if someone has a blunted heart rate response? Um, that, you know, we, we can have a, you know, more nuanced discussion about that, but, but we used heart rate, um, and a percentage of the heart rate reserve as our measure of whether or not someone was, um, working hard enough, were they generating the kind of intensities that we were going for? And the heart rate reserve is calculated from, um, their, uh, resting and peak heart rates, achieved during a graded exercise test that we had individuals perform prior to training. So at baseline testing. So we had them perform a a graded exercise test. We captured, um, uh, you know, their peak heart rate during that test. And of course, resting heart rate prior to, and then we set a minimum uh, threshold of moderate intensity, which is 40 to 59% of, of heart rate reserve. And the goal was to ensure that the person stayed within that range, uh, or at least met the minimum requirement to be considered to be within moderate intensity. Um, so we had individuals wearing a heart rate monitor and the goal was to have individuals perform these activities with the least amount of assistance possible. So we didn't use any type of harness system. Um, we had individuals, uh, positioned in front of a, a frame with a, with a horizontal bar if they needed some balance support, you know, they could, we asked them, you know, just light touch on the bar. Um, otherwise, uh, myself or another of our um, research staff would just spot them. We would be there with them, you know, for safety, all participants wore, wore a, a gate belt, a supportive belt um, that we could use. Some individuals were, you know, of course, fully independent required, you know, just supervision of the activities. Mm-hmm. And then some individuals actually required more hands-on support. Um, you know, you know, maybe, uh, they needed the light touch on the bar. Uh, maybe they required some, you know, support at the gate belt to ensure that they were stable performing these mm-hmm. really dynamic movements, like, you know, multi-directional lunges. Um, but, 
uh, yeah, so so this is a, you know the, of course there's nuance in there, and I think that's maybe what you're you're pointing out. You know what, how much assistance was provided, and what was the nuance of actually implementing? No, no, not at all, not at all. Just um, trying to. It sounds like to me it's more of a assist as needed type of approach, similar to what we yes. use in the high intensity gay training protocols that we implement. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I appreciate the the clinical application applicability of, you know, heart rate monitors. We use those in clinic all the time. So it's nice when the studies carry over to clinical practice and things that we could, um, you know, replicate a little bit more easily than some of the high-tech technology. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's look at, at like pairing the, the, the stimulation and the circuit, and let's talk a little bit about your findings and if they were what you expected as, as a group. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so so the way that this study was organized, so this was a kind of a parallel group design, randomized uh, trial. So uh, individuals were enrolled in the study. Um, they were randomly allocated to either this motor skill training circuit uh, with um, a sham stimulation. So they received the same setup with the, with the TDCS. So the electrodes were placed in the same location. Um, they went through all the same procedures uh, in the sham control condition. We used a ramp up, ramp down protocol. So we ramp stimulation up. And typically with this kind of stimulation, individuals might sense a you know, tingling or prickling sensation on the scalp. Um, so we want to give people the experience in the sham condition that they might be receiving stimulation. So we ramp the stimulation up. Um, that's on for, you know, 20 seconds or so, and then it's ramped back down. And we use that same ramp up and ramp down at the beginning of the training and at the end, you know, so they kind of get that same sensation. So, so that was our, our sham, uh, our, our motor skill training plus sham TDCS group. And then we had a, a separate group who received um, the active transcranial direct current stimulation combined with the motor skill training. Um, and so unfortunately, you know, this was study was carried out during COVID, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we had uh, goals of enrolling 15 individuals per, per group. We ended up being short of that by five participants. So, we, you know, our samples were a little unbalanced, but that's just the nature. I think we're going to find all publications coming out during that time or not going to be where they'd like to be. I was going to say in the heart of COVID, that's, that's not too bad to only be five short. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys are familiar with the SCI literature. So, so, you know, enrolling 25, you know, people for an intervention study for per, persons with SCI, I mean, that's not a small group. Maybe. Not at all. Yeah. So, so yeah, we were, we were happy with that. Um, so uh, this, uh, so, so intervention was carried out over three consecutive days. Um and we, we kind of organized the study in this way for, for two reasons. One, because there is prior literature that um, indicates that even single sessions of TDCS combined with motor training can produce an effect. Um, so, you know, that was one piece of literature that we leaned on. And, and, and some of that work has, um, was done by Dr. Field Fote and her colleagues. Um, and then... Um, and then we also wanted to observe the kind of between session uh, uh, changes that might occur. So, so there's also evidence that TDCS produced not only a kind of like a within session effect, but uh, you know may have um, long term effects over a 24 or 48 hour, 
hour period. So, so, um, so we kind of had this a three consecutive day design. And um, so everyone completed the motor skill training and then they received either sham or active TDCS. Um, okay, so as far as results, uh, we expected, you know, we hypothesized that the, the, the motor skill training plus the active TDCS would produce greater, greater improvements in motor function uh, based on our outcomes than the sham condition. And we, we observed really no differences between the two groups. So the added TDC, active TDCS did not appear, at least in this you know, initial study, to have uh, a significant influence on motor outcomes. But everyone that, um, uh, on average, I say everyone, on average for, for our sample, the motor skill training was effective just within this very short window of three days, effective at improving uh, measures of walking function. So that's overground walking speed, uh, we captured walking distance during the two-minute two-minute walk test. Um, we captured 3D uh, kinematics, so we looked at spatiotemporal characteristics. We looked at some other measures of kind of gait kinematics, and and um, you know most of these measures were improved with just three days of motor skill training. But TDCS did not appear to have a, 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 an influence. Um, but I, you know, I'll. I'm saying that with, um, you know, with a few caveats that I'm not sure if you, you guys would be interested in hearing, but I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. let us hear them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so in the publication that we're, we're, we're discussing, we, we just presented kind of the cumulative effects of training and, and TDCS, um, on, on measures of walking function. So, you know, 10 meter walk, uh, two minute walk, and then we, reported spatiotemporal characteristics, cadence, you know, stride mm -hmm. frequency, stride mm -hmm. length. Um, and in you know, all of those measures improved. Um, in a second publication um, that's in Frontiers in Human uh, Neuroscience, um, we did capture measures of balance performance. Um, with specifically, we, we um, assessed individuals using the Berg balance scale. Mm -hmm. Um, and one interesting thing that has emerged and, um, you know, this, this is unpublished observation. Um, but so, uh, one of our tasks, the step task, so that's in our circuit, one of the tasks is that individuals, um, uh, you know, complete the step task where they're stepping up to a step and they're stepping back down and they have to complete, you know, um, as many repetitions as possible. Um, when we dived into the, the individual components of the Berg balance test, uh, the, the item number 14 in the Berg is the step task. You mm -hmm. know, how many, uh, they have to complete eight steps in, in as quickly as they can. Mm -hmm. The only significant uh, uh, item within the Berg balance that was difference between TDCS and the sham condition was this step task. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we might be able to draw from that, you know, this, you might think that this is a stretch, but we might be able to draw from that, that TDCS had an effect, but it was very specific to the motor task being performed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that, that's one conclusion that we might draw that, okay, maybe TDCS had an effect, but it was, you know, mainly specific to a, a, a discrete motor task as opposed to um, you know, more of the global walking function assessments that we 
that we um, capture as our kind of primary and secondary outcome. So, um, and the only other thing I'll add to the TDCS discussion, you know, because I think it's worth talking about and I don't want people to take away from this necessarily that, you know, oh, well, the way we applied TDCS, it just, you know, is, isn't effective, is, is, couldn't theoretically work. Um, there's been many publications at this point and, and reviews of the literature describing the variability in responsiveness to uh, neuromodulation, uh, non-invasive brain stimulation and neuromodulation technology. So uh, we've seen this in some of the neurophysiological assessments that are performed in, in our lab by some of our research scientists that among persons with spinal cord injury, there's some people that uh, seem to respond uh, uh, you know, well to TDCS. And when I say respond, I just mean using um, transcranial magnetic stimulation to elicit uh, motor evoked responses in the, in the, you know, muscles of the upper or lower limb. Um, and some people experience very robust, you know, responses to TDCS uh, and, and some don't. Um, hmm. And, you know, there, there's many, um, lines of speculation, why that might be the case. Of course, the severity of the injury could influence responsiveness, you know, how well supraspinal inputs are being delivered to, to muscles of the lower extremities. Um, some of it's inherent in just the kind of, uh, you know, behavioral lifestyle factors of the individual. So, you know, we, we know now that, you know, smoking and states of arousal and, um, uh, you know, these kinds of factors influence you know, levels of cortical excitability and, and there are day-to-day -day fluctuations in that. So, so it may be that there's just a lot of variability and some people, you know, favorably responded to TDCS in our intervention, but we weren't able to discern, you know, the, the differences given, you know, kind of our study design. So those are possibilities that still leave, I think, the door open to TDCS being effective for some people, but you know, we need to do more research, of course. This is how it always goes. More research is required. <laughs> we always want to know who those responders are immediately so we can target the interventions in. But yes. so with that, you know, tell us what, what do you hope that this work will influence or what what is the next projects that you're hoping to see come out of um come out of this? Yeah, so we're we're actually already underway with the next iteration of or another, I, sh I should say, another iteration of, of this study. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, Shepherd Center is one of um, you know the spinal cord injury model system centers. Um, we, uh, Dr. Field Pote was awarded um, uh, another grant, another round of grant funding for the spinal cord injury model systems, um, and so. Shepherd Center's site-specific projects, similar to the last round of the model systems is expanding on this study. So the fact that we observed with this motor skill training circuit that individuals achieved improvements in overground walking speed in only three days that approached the 0.15 meter per second kind of threshold for a clinically important difference in walking mm -hmm. speed, um, you know, is gives us some level of optimism that this style of training, the circuit could be of value. Mm -hmm. And so Absolutely. we are currently um, investigating a longer term uh, intervention using this exact same circuit. 
um, we're pairing this in, with the circuit this time instead of um, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, we're pairing it with transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation. Mm. So, you know, to, 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 and I know you guys have had individuals who have spoken on this topic um, as well on your podcast. And so we're, we're pairing the technology, uh, the spinal cord stimulation technology with our motor skill training circuit. And again, you know, kind of following the same model where we want to determine whether or not there's an additive effect of the stimulation. Um, so, so that's one, one avenue where we're continuing to, to work down. Um, we are taking a more nuanced approach to um, characterizing the training itself. So some of the criticism that we, um, and, and this is valid criticism, but some of the criticism was, well, uh, you, you couldn't say, we couldn't say much about how individuals implemented the circuit. Were there differences between individuals in terms of their ability to perform the circuit or number of repetitions performed? Because we simply asked people to complete as many repetitions as they could in 60 seconds. So they, they, everyone had the same time, but there may have been differences in, you know, depending on levels of functionality, differences in the number of repetitions they performed or the quality mm -hmm. of which, you know, of how they performed the different movements. Um, or the velocity, you know, some individuals, if, if the velocity is one of those key elements that might be driving intensity and also translating to an individual's ability to generate higher step frequencies during walking. Mm -hmm. Well, are there differences in, in how well someone can generate, you know, displace their center of mass performing things like a vertical jump. So we're actually capturing um, some uh, 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 kinematics during the motor skill training, we're using uh, inertial measurement units, a, a suite of inertial measurement units to capture uh, the kinematics of how people are actually moving during these different tests. And we're hoping that some of that will reveal potentially nuanced differences between, you know, how individuals are performing the tasks and, and whether or not there's any relationship between the quality of those movements and improvements in walking function. Um, and so, you know, we might be able to better tailor this style of training, um, depending on, you know, who seems to respond to certain activities better than others. So, well, I think I'd be a part two, uh, podcast in our future. Then. Yeah. I was going to say, Chris, and we'll, we'll have to bring him back. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Hey, I'd love to love to come back, you know, um, you know, selfishly, I always want to talk about you know, the things we're doing in the lab, because I think it's really interesting. And, um, and the goal is, you know, for, for our interventions to be accessible to, to clinicians, to be accessible to individuals in the community. Um, you know, we, we can't hang on to people forever in our, in our rehab programs and we don't want to, right. We want them to be back out into the real world, into the, their homes and the community, but we need to have things that they can do that could have a meaningful uh, ongoing effect on their, their function. And so kind of that's what, that is the driver of the interventions we're choosing at the moment. Yes. And we, the consumers appreciate that because I'll tell you the second I read a publication and it talks about 80 visits, I put it right back down and on to the next thing I go. So yeah. um, the utility is, is very appreciated um, mm -hmm. from, from the clinicians out in practice. Uh, one thing we forgot to ask you, but anything that you didn't get to say that you want to like mention to our listeners, if there is anything um, before we sign off? 
Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, just how grateful I am that you guys have invited me onto your podcast. Um, you know, again, especially considering, uh, you know, the, the depth of experience and, you know, quality of your prior guests, you know, it just it's an honor. And uh, I always enjoy talking about the things we're doing in the whole spinal cord injury lab at Shepherd Center. So thank you guys so much. So it has been so fun to get to talk to all of these wonderful people. Um, and it, it's just been, it's an honor for us to speak with you. So we appreciate that. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. No, no, it's been great. Thank you. All right, Nick. Well, that's going to be the end of our chat today. We thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. And our listeners really appreciate better understanding the work that you guys have done with this project. Um, We want to make sure that all of our listeners know to check the show notes at the end. We will include Nick's contact information. So if you have any further questions specific um, to him that you can reach out and and send him an email or um, I don't know if you want to do social media or anything like that. But we want to thank you guys, the listeners, again, for your support of Discus and for joining us today for our discussion. We're going to go ahead and close it out. And I'm Kristen Cizat. I'm Uzair Hamad. And until next time, we look forward to seeing you again.